Yeah, so um, as you may know, the, the text in front of us is what we call a benediction. A benediction, it's a, it's a, it's a pronouncement of divine blessing upon the people of God, a benediction. How many of you guys grew up in a, in a more either liturgical or traditional church where the, pa- the pastor always ended in a benediction? Yeah, uh, was that a good experience for you or just a, you know, a cold orthodoxy for you? Cold orthodoxy, raise your hand. Okay, uh, a sweet kind of endearing thing, raise your hand. Okay, yeah, so uh, I've had good experience with it from one of the pastors that, uh, the first pastor that I actually worked for. Uh, but as I told last service, I've never felt mature enough to actually do it on a regular basis. I always feel like I'm filling a shoe that I, don't, I shouldn't be standing in, uh, especially when I was 29 when I got here. Uh, I'm 44 coming this year, and, and I thought that age would count for something, but I'm starting to learn that it really doesn't. So, but anyway, um, I love the benedictions uh, within the scriptures. I think it's uh, probably intimidating to millennials to hear the, the term benediction especially after you know, the last pope was Benedict. Um, it's a very strange title to give yourself. It means blessing. Um, but uh, maybe we should just call it a blessing. Uh, if, you, if you pay attention uh, as you're reading through the scriptures, as you're studying them, you discover that the benedictions are all over the place. Uh, there's patriarchal blessings, where one of the, the patriarchs, especially Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would pronounce a blessing upon their children. Jacob's is by far the most famous. You know, it's a whole chapter, Genesis chapter 49. It's filled with blessing and prophecy and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. But probably the most famous blessing is the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter six, uh, which you've probably heard. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. Does that ring a bell? Okay. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. That should never become cold orthodoxy, by the way. Just the language in it. And God, as a father, <clears throat> endearing himself to his people. And um, in the text, uh, in Numbers, the, the, God was prescribing this to the priest so that he could, uh, the priest could communicate the heart of God to the people and put his name upon them. And uh, the example I gave in first service is that when you do your homework, you turn it into the teacher, but there's something you have to do on it to make sure they know that it's yours. You have to put your name on it, okay? The work is yours. Uh, the content of the work is yours. It points to you. Well, God puts his name on his people. You're his. You belong to him. And the work that is happening and the, the final job will be his. Don't you like that? Because if that work is left up to you, there's a phrase we use today in English, it's called train wreck. Okay? We want him to be in charge. We want him to be the, the sculptor, the potter, the master. And um, these benedictions point to not only do we belong to God, but by his grace and blessing, he's working in us his perfect end. We see these all the time in the letters of Paul and Peter in the New Testament, both beginning and at the end of their letters. Paul said to the Romans, to all who are in Rome, 
Uh, Beloved of God. Very sweet. Called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter one, verse seven. It was an interesting way of Paul communicating how he felt about them and how God was endearing himself to them. And then he ends the letter with something similar. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Amen. Romans 16, 24, or as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 14, peace to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Uh, What I find fascinating is that almost all of the benedictions in scripture uh, are in keeping with Numbers chapter six, the first one prescribed by God for his people. It seems to be, uh, as far as I can tell, the first one that's prescribed by God and for his people. And so there's this concept of grace and peace uh, that goes out in the benedictions. And as we study grace and peace, we realize that both uh, of them are two of man's greatest needs. Grace and peace. Now, the the benediction of Hebrews 13, it doesn't actually contain the word grace, but as we look at how the benefits within the the benediction are distributed to God's people, that's all grace, okay? The whole concept is there. And then when you look at verse 25, uh, in the final benediction, why he has two benedictions at the end, I don't know, but it has the word grace in it. So it's there and it's, it's woven through everything. And then as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we realize the whole book is about grace, the gospel of grace, the covenant of grace. The author said to us earlier that because of Christ, um, that we can approach the throne of grace. We can approach the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 And the author tells us that we receive grace, we ought to be receiving grace, so that we might live or walk in an acceptable way to God. That's going to be probably the greatest theme throughout um, the um, benediction this morning, that we ought to be the recipients of grace so that we can live in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God. So strong presence of grace in this letter. Now, the unique character of the benediction in Hebrews 13 is all of the theology that's presented in it. Now, that's not typical. Other benedictions, of course, they must rely upon the truth of theology. Uh, every, Every good affirmation must. But here, the author of Hebrews, he just comes out and he declares all of this theology, these truths about God, and then it flows out of his attributes, the the grace of God, okay? In the verses here, God is declared to be the God of peace, the God who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the God who makes us complete for his work, the God who makes us well-pleasing in his sight, the God who works all things through Jesus Christ and the blood of his covenant. And he is the God to whom all glory belongs. Pretty sweet, huh? Yeah, you know, that's actually a lot for two verses. Don't you think? It's a lot. Just to be saying about God and then mingled in that is the 
blessing of God. Because of who he is, these things flow out of him and to us. So let's, let's look at all of these briefly. Um, yeah, the first one, the author declares God to be the God of peace. The God of peace. Now, I think it's interesting, it's probably because of my bias in regard to who the author is, but this title, the God of peace, is exclusively used by Paul in the New Testament, six times in his letters. Nobody else uses that. Now, of course, because of scholarship, I have to say that it doesn't prove that Paul was the author. He may not have, okay? But it probably means that he influenced the person that did it. And as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, you realize that these characteristics, phraseology of Paul is just everywhere in the letter. And of course, people debate on all of that. It's most definitely uh, the text is inspired by God and useful for his people. Um, I like to push that Paul's the author, but it's really not that important to me. I just like to see who will want to argue. Not really. Yeah. So the point of the the title, uh, it points to God as the originator and the source. So he's both the originator and the source of peace, of real peace. He's the God of it. And the fact is that true peace cannot be realized. It can't be experienced apart from him. Okay, people can talk about peace, uh, but what they lack, if if it's not the God of peace, they lack divine peace, okay? that supersedes and goes beyond the peace that the world gives, as Jesus says. But the peace that God bestows on people, it always comes in two ways, and it's always in the same order. Okay, one cannot come before the the other. There is first peace with God, and that is where the animosity between a holy God and sinful man is removed by the blood of Christ. It's through the cross of Jesus, uh, Colossians 1.20 says, that he made peace. So the enmity, the hatred between us, uh, it was removed through blood and the blood of Christ alone. That comes first. And then there is the peace of God, which is the experience, and mind you, it's the experience It's not intellectual knowledge. It's purely experiential, okay? It's the experience we have because of our relationship with God. It's a relationship that abolishes fear, that abolishes fear. John 14, 27 through 28. Sounds like a bold statement. Uh, You'll have to take it up with Jesus, okay? When you go to John 14, the words are in red. Well, if you have a red letter Bible. Trust me, he said it, okay? You can look it up yourself. So because of the peace of God within us, uh, we can experience peace in spite of any conflict in the world currently, okay? Or the unexpected. How many of you guys feel like, what's gonna happen next right now? What's on the horizon? I mean, where's this all gonna go? And some people are really freaked out by it. But if you're walking close to Jesus, well, I've, I've read Revelation 20. Okay, I know what's gonna happen. I know that he's sovereign. 
I know that everything in this universe from the beginning of time, from the sin of Adam even, until the close of history, all things are moving toward his orchestrated, intended, and revealed end. So why would I not have peace? It's orchestrated, it's intended, and he's already revealed it to us. He knows the end from the beginning. So who cares what's on the horizon? Do what you're called to do. Love God, love people, preach the gospel, right? Stay off Facebook. (laughs) So I want to come back to this thing about removing enmity, this animosity. The God of peace, he he provided his son to make peace between God and man. I want to consider that. And I want to consider it in light of the fact that God has commanded us to seek peace and pursue it. Remember we had that discussion a couple Sundays ago? It is our responsibility to seek peace, pursue it, and do all that we can to apprehend it. Okay, That's our job. But we seek peace and pursue it in the footsteps of our God. We follow his lead in all of this as the God of peace. Okay? He, he led out in his pursuit of peace by sending Jesus to make peace. Okay? He led out. He, he had to do this if there was going to be peace because there's no one, not one, Paul says, not one, as David says, who seeks after God. There's just not one man in his fallen condition. He only and always turns away from God. He is a rebel, okay? That's what he does. Uh, Jesus said, no one comes to me. Now, no one in the Greek is a very technical term. It means no one. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, draws him, John 6, 44. Yeah. Now, depending on what school of theology you come from, uh, this drawing of the sinner, this wooing of the sinner has been called God's prevenial or prevenient grace. I very much believe in it, okay? Uh, Because I think it's consistent with Jesus' words. Nobody comes to me unless the Father woos him draws her, okay? Man, through sin, he has made himself the enemy of God, and by our sin nature, we only rebel against him. And what we do, apart from him, is we perpetuate it. We build on it. We make it worse and worse. But God demonstrated his love for us, or toward us, in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, much more than, I'm quoting scripture, these are not my words. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 8 through 10. I don't know, maybe you've observed in Romans 5, the phrase much more. We call it the much more chapter of the Bible because sin does this, but grace 
And God does much more. It exceeds, it transcends it. He reconciled his enemies to himself. And then preceding the statement, Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. So by sending Jesus, he sought peace and he secured it. He secured it. And once he provided all that was required to make peace, he offered it to us through the gospel of Jesus. Sought peace. He pursued it. He acquired it. And then he distributed it through the gospel as we're supposed to be a part of that process. What a glorious privilege, amen? To be saved and then to extend the message of salvation to other people. Only the God of peace would exchange the life of his son to make peace with his enemies. Truly, he is the God of peace. But he's also uh, the God, as we go on in the benediction, he's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So we have to understand that God exchanged the life of his son for his enemies because he knew he would get his son back and reconcile us to himself. He got more out of it than he put into it. That's pretty sweet. To do that for an enemy, enemies, and to get more out of it than you put into it. Yeah, what a sweet thing. Yeah, the resurrection, we have to understand, it wasn't just some random act of God. I just want my son back. That's not what that's about. Uh, the resurrection demonstrates that God approved of Jesus' sacrifice for my sin and for your sin, that it sufficiently and completely satisfied eternal justice on behalf of the sinner. That's why he was raised. You know, no benefit of redemption is accessible. Do you understand? No blessing of heaven can be distributed in the context of redemption without the resurrection. Nothing. Nothing. There's no forgiveness. There's no justification. There's no peace. There's no life after death without the resurrection. There is only Judaism. Only Judaism in which there is zero redemption. Now in Judaism, it has to be stated, you do have the one true God, but you have no provision for salvation. You have all of the sacrifices which foreshadowed them, that point to them. You have all the prophecy that predicted it, but it's a world that has not yet realized it, that does not possess it. Paul says that the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice can only be distributed as a result of the resurrection. Paul thought that the righteousness of Christ could only be imputed to the sinner by Jesus' resurrection. He says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up to the cross because of our offenses and raised to life again because of our justification. Understand justification is is a legal term. It means to declare someone righteous, but it's on the basis of what Christ has done for the sinner. So when Paul says that he was delivered up on the cross because of our offenses, it doesn't just mean that he went there to die for them. Peter says that 
my sin and my guilt was transferred to Jesus on Calvary. And then he suffered the penalty for my sin. And then through faith, Jesus' righteousness, his, his purity before the Father is imputed to us. That exchange. He takes our sin and he's punished for it. We receive his righteousness and we're rewarded for it. That's the doctrine of justification. Okay? Of which cannot be, cannot happen without the resurrection. Okay? Seems like a fairly important piece of theology. What do you think? Yeah. So the God of peace raised his son from the dead to release and distribute all the benefits of heaven. I mentioned before that there was a group of pastors and and Christian artists a few years ago who were responding to skeptics about the resurrection. They were saying, well, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What difference does that make? Our God is bigger than that. You know, implying that God could save us anyway. I I had a few comments, not on Facebook. They were all internal. It was inner turmoil. And I I just thought to myself, you know, it doesn't matter how often or how passionately you say something that ridiculous. You can say it with as much eloquence as you want, and you can be as, and sound as convincingly as someone can, but in the end, it's, it's error. It's error, it's false, okay? The, the idea isn't even worth considering hypothetically because it has absolutely nothing to do with how big God is. It just has everything to do with what God has promised. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, God is a what? He would be a what? A liar. So it throws his character into question. It has everything to do with what God actually did and on what basis he redeems humanity. So if you don't affirm what God affirms, you have not believed in the gospel of God. You haven't. And if you don't believe in the gospel, the Bible says that you're not saved regardless of how big God is. It was in his bigness that he sent Jesus and called him out of the grave. That's how he's ordained things. And that's the way that it is. No resurrection, no redemption. And apart from being redeemed, there are no benefits from heaven. They come to us by way of the resurrection. Now, before we look at the next description of God, the author has something to say about uh, Jesus as far as a title is concerned. He calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, We could also translate it as the great pastor. The same word in the Greek, poimen. Um, We see it in uh, Peter as shepherd. We see it in Ephesians 4 as pastor. Uh, It can be translated in any way. Um, He's the great pastor for which I'm so thankful for. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd in John 11, uh, John chapter 10 rather, verse 11 and 14. He says, because he's the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. 
This is what makes me a good shepherd, he's saying. Peter refers to Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, 1 Peter 2.25, who, as I said earlier, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, referring to Calvary, referring to the cross. Interesting, those two references both place Jesus' shepherding uh, in relation to his sacrifice, his death. But then when we look at 1 Peter 5.4, Excuse me. He calls Jesus uh, the chief shepherd who rewards his under shepherds, pastors and elders, when he returns. So he's also the end times pastor. Do you realize how important that is? That he's he's the ever pastor. He's the ever pastor. Uh, Death did not terminate Jesus' shepherding. He rose again, he ascended to his father, and he will return to reward and to continue shepherding his people forevermore. Yeah, nothing can stop his shepherding. He's the ever shepherd, okay? But then the author goes on to say that it's in his death that Jesus ratified a new and everlasting covenant. A new and everlasting covenant. Now, of course, as we've gone through the the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter eight. This is in contrast to the first covenant that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, the covenant of Moses, that was instituted temporarily. So the everlasting covenant versus the temporary covenant. You know, God intended for the covenant of Sinai to be fulfilled and to be made obsolete through the death of his son. It was established on, temporary, on a temporary basis until Christ came. I think I've mentioned, um, uh, have you guys have heard of, of uh, planned obsolescence? So our, our college students who are engineers uh, are, are taught planned obsolescence. That is, they build something with it breaking in mind. It's planned, there's a weakness that is installed in the appliance. So how many of you guys grew up when, uh, when, at a time when Maytag lasted for 35 years? Okay, that's because planned obsolescence wasn't a thing yet. Uh, but now your appliance, I mean, who has gotten 12 years out of a modern appliance? Not even a cricket. Oh, you did. Okay, good, good for you guys. We've lived here 14 years, I'm on my second set of washers, but I have a freezer that I think is 35 years old. Yeah, so the law of Moses, planned obsolescence, okay? But a little different than that. Jesus was to come to fulfill all of it, all the demands of the law, walking perfectly in its precepts, dying for every sin ever committed against it, and fulfilling all of the prophecies of the prophets. He came to fulfill, and then by his blood, by the installation, ratification of the new covenant, the old was made obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8. If you haven't been here with us through the book of Hebrews, I encourage you uh, to listen at least to the the sermons on Hebrews chapter eight on podcast. I would review it this morning, but I gotta eat something real soon. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, The same question 
on, you know, well, what do you mean it's temporary? What do you mean that, why then would God install the law? Why would he give it to Moses and the nation of Israel? This came up in Galatia. And the, you know, the question was asked, what then does the law serve? What was its purpose? And Paul says in Galatians 3.19 that the law of Moses was established because of transgression. Because of transgression. And he says stuff like this throughout his letters that, you know, by the law, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, is the knowledge of sin. When you look at the law of God, especially his moral commandments, you don't look at that and say, look how good I am. The Ten Commandments. Nobody looks at it and says, yeah, I got that down. Okay, I'm good. No, it's, it, that's not its intention. Its intention is to show you how wrong you are and how distant you are from God so that you would come to a recognition of how much you need him. But there is no salvation in the law. Paul didn't say it was given for redemption. It wasn't given for salvation. It certainly wasn't given to make you righteous. It was just given to show you how unrighteous you were. And he's, so listen to this. He says, the law of Moses was established because of transgression until the seed should come, the seed being Christ. Yeah, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, Paul says, there's no longer any need for the law. We have the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And so Paul instructs us in Titus 2 that it's now grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously in this broken and corrupt world. So the law of Moses, the old covenant, it was made obsolete But in that, he also made this new covenant here called an eternal covenant by which the author of Hebrews has told us he's secured eternal redemption. He's given us better promises, everything better. Okay, everything better. You guys can, I don't know, I I asked for a service, how long were we in Hebrews? I think it's two years. So there's some content there. (laughs) But it's, I've enjoyed it. Uh, If you didn't enjoy it, it's too bad. I have the microphone. (laughs) So let's come back to the context here. So far in the benediction, God is presented to us as the God of peace and the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And in verse 20, by means of this everlasting covenant, he is the God who makes us complete to do his will. And he just doesn't start off by doing things for us. He continues. Yeah. This is really where the the blessings in the benediction begin to to come out. He's talking about how God's grace is practically distributed to his people. You know, perhaps you've noticed that the will of God, in light of your humanness, is rather intangible. We're, We're broken. And because of our brokenness, morally, we're weak, morally, okay? We're weak. But in our weakness, our God offers us his gracious assistance, his assistance. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 28, the author said, let us have grace by which we may serve God in an acceptable way. Look, if you're not if you're not constantly being the recipient of grace, 
anything, anything recorded in God's word will remain intangible to you. It'll be completely out of reach. Okay, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine used to say that Christianity is not difficult. It's impossible. Okay. Jesus said, you know, the ludicrous things like be perfect, even as my father in heaven is perfect. I'm being facetious. I don't, nothing Jesus says is ludicrous, by the way. But it sounds that way to my flesh. Okay, it sounds like something I should white out of my Bible. Be holy for I am holy. Isn't that just slightly intimidating for your humanity? Yeah. So you can't possibly in yourself live for God in an acceptable way unless you are the student, as Titus 2 says, and the recipient of grace, as he says in Hebrews chapter 12. You have to be. And I think it's important that as, you know, in the discussion of grace, we want to we confine it to a discussion of salvation. You have been saved by grace through faith. And so he says grace is something that by some mystical way God saves us. But then that's just what grace does. But that's totally inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. The grace of God is a resource for holy living. The grace of God is a resource for living in a way that pleases him. It's, it's actually what energizes us. In fact, when you study the, Holy, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and grace, you get a little confused. But see, the Holy Spirit is the agent of grace, okay? And he makes, uh, he brings God's grace to us. He's the one that works in us. So God isn't some distant, demanding deity. He's near and he's energizing us by the, the indwelling of his spirit. Okay. And we call that ministry grace. Okay, grace. God is good. He's a gentle father. David said, you know that I am but dust. He's saying, I'm, God knows that I'm just nothing. And that without him, there's nothing that I can do to please him. So God is good. He has pity on us. He has grace for us. The text says that he is working with our incompleteness to bring us to completion. He's working in our frailty to make us strong. We love those verses that says, you know, he's the author and the finisher. Uh, the, the, he, he who began a good work will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that the right one? Okay. Yeah, he's working with our incompleteness to bring us to completion. Uh, the word complete, uh, depending on the translation you have, it can say uh, equip. Equip. You see, God has a good work for us that is in perfect accord with his will. And in ourselves, we do not have what it takes to accomplish this. There's, there's no amount of, of human self-will or determination that is sufficient. We are completely inadequate. We are, uh, we're ill-equipped. We're insufficient. We're unprepared. Does that describe you? Or not? Yeah, it's us. And so by his grace, he, he comes alongside of us. He provides that strength where we're weak, especially in the context of temptation. 
He grants us wisdom for foolishness as we wait on him and seek his face. I told First Service that if you're gonna post something on Facebook as a reaction, then you should probably spend three days meditating on 1 Corinthians 12 or 13, or the fruit of the Spirit, or the character of Christ, because lest you say something that is totally inconsistent and bring shame to his name. But if you meditate, if you wait on him, he will provide you wisdom, which will probably conclude with saying nothing. Yeah. He gives discernment to our short-sightedness as we meditate on his word, patience for our frustration as we slow down a little bit, as we humble ourselves. He replaces fear with courage, hate with love, exchanging bitterness for forgiveness and our rage with the peace of God. This is the process by which God is making us complete in every good work to do his will. So I want to point something out here in regard to obedience, because obedience can be drudgery, can't it? Being honest? Being obedient? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to understand that God is not satisfied purely with obedience. He's not. Okay. Just getting it done is not his only objective. You know, by way of obedience... His great objective in that process is to make us more like him. He wants to produce his character in us through that whole process. So as you know, there there are different ways to obey. There's different ways to obey. You can get a whole lot done as you complain and grumble about it. A whole lot done. So the job might be completed, but your character is far from complete. And that job, that work that you were doing, was intended by God to work in you to that end. And so when the job is done, it reveals something about us that we're not there. Okay? And when we're not there, guess what God does? Let me give you something more to do. That's what a good parent does, right? Yeah, we have a character issue here. So I'm going to put you in that same circumstance again and again until it's mastered. And God does that with his grace. You know, you can work with people and even do things for people as you look down on them in self-righteousness and false piety. And people would say, they're doing the work of the Lord, but the Holy Spirit would say that the work of the Lord is far from being done. Okay? Okay. You can scream and yell to secure your child's obedience, but God has not yet secured your obedience. All of that stuff is meant to expose something about you. Because, you know, we're not like David so much, you know, search me and know me. You know, we don't want to ask, give God permission to tell us what's wrong with us, so he puts us through life, and then we have to come, term, come to terms with ourselves. And then we say, God, I need your grace, because I'm not as tough as I thought. Okay. just demonstrates inadequacy, a greater need for grace. And what I love is that the God of grace is intensely interested in making us complete. Yeah. And something else to understand is that completeness is not some arbitrary concept of God. It's not. Completeness, we can say, is Christ-likeness. 
Whenever we read the New Testament and God is talking about our lives and what he's trying to do with it, he has an objective. It's called Jesus. He wants the, you know, the, the moral and, and, and the, 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 the image of Christ to be reflected. When he looks at us, when Christ looks at us, he wants to see his reflection. Not his, not his physical image. 2 Corinthians 3. The Holy Spirit is shaping us into the same image. And he talks about looking into a mirror dimly. And as we look, we eventually want to see in the mirror his reflection. Because we've behaved like him. We've lived like him. We've spoken like him. That's, that's completeness. And that leads us into what's next in the benediction. Our God is the God who works in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. Well-pleasing. Yeah, he has a work. But we can't do it without his assistance. Please follow along. I'm gonna run something past you here. Paul told the Philippians, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12. Now when you come to passages like this, especially if you've worked with uh, cult members that call themselves Christians, uh, language is essential, okay? Paul did not say work for your salvation. Do you see that? He didn't say work for your salvation. Uh, when, I've, when I've spoken with cult members, they love to turn here and, and I go, well, hold the phone. And he didn't say work for my salvation, okay? Paul said work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so the text is not about working to be saved. Paul's talking to people who are already saved. Paul is encouraging these Christians to consider all that has been given to them in this great salvation that Christ secured for them. Why? So that they can appropriate it for themselves. Yeah. It's like someone who just inherited a massive estate from an uncle they didn't know that they had. Massive estate. The estate and everything in it legally belongs to them, but they haven't yet seen all of it or discovered all that belongs to them. Yeah. It's for them to discover all that they've inherited and it's up to them to appropriate all of it for themselves. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Christ has legally, by his blood, secured this inheritance. And it's vast, Paul says, beyond human comprehension without the Spirit. Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, now mind you, he's quoting the Old Testament. And now he's going to bring it into perspective in the New Covenant. He says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.9. It's amazing. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, that they may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height 
to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Does that sound like a fairly big inheritance? Did you comprehend all of that when you got saved? No, you've been entering into that. You've been experiencing more of it as you walk closer with God, hopefully. Okay, it's huge. It's Ephesians 1, 17 through 18 and Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Discovering this and appropriate it for oneself, that's, that's working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've been given all this stuff. The author of Hebrews said in chapter two, this great salvation, it's great. It's all inclusive. How many of you guys have been on a, a, a cruise? All inclusive cruise. How long did it take you to experience all in that in, all inclusive cruise? Took you the whole time, didn't it? Yeah. I've been on one. It's a little over the top for me. I'd much rather go backpacking. <laughs> but I really like that smoked salmon for breakfast. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, working it out. But it's impossible apart from God's assistance. So Paul continues in Philippians 2 saying, now listen, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. So this process of, of working out your own salvation is for the purpose of being pleasing in God's sight. So please pay attention. I don't want to lose you at this point. God expects us. He expects us to work out the salvation that he's given to us, to work. But that work, he says, it is impossible apart from him. He's requiring that we trust him. He requires that we cooperate with him, that we submit and obey to him. But ultimately, he says, it's God who works in us. And it's, it's the first one that I'm so thankful for, that he's working in our will. How many of you guys find that it's a battle of the will? And that, and that in a certain circumstance, you just, you just didn't feel like doing it. You didn't feel like saying the right thing. You didn't feel like doing the right thing. Because your will just wasn't present. But Paul is saying that God works in your will. Because he knows how weak your will is. And he knows that it'll never, on its own, be pleasing to him. He has to work in your will but then also he working in us both to will and to do. That is to live and behave. That is as Christ so that we would be well-pleasing to him. Christ alone. Isn't that sweet? You couldn't save yourself, so he saved you. You can't sanctify yourself and make yourself like Jesus, so he does it for you. And he just wants you to cooperate. He just wants you to trust him. Man. Working in us, it's well-pleasing. You know, in the Gospels, we hear the Father say a number of times, this is my son in whom I'm well-pleased. So when we talk about this concept of completeness, 
He's stated what it is, hasn't he? This thing that pleases me, it's my son. And I want to conform you to his image. That is God's ideal for us. Okay? And anyone aware of themselves, if you're like me, you could do a lot less with yourself and a lot more with Jesus. Okay? I've never been disappointed in Jesus, but I'm very disappointed in myself quite often. We need more of Christ. All right, let's, let's get to the last thing here and I'll get you out of here. This all naturally works into the last part of verse 21 concerning the glory of God. If it is God who saves us, if it, if it is God who completes us and works in us for his good pleasure, then all glory naturally belongs to him. Amen? It naturally does. But I think that of all things, the glory of God in the community of faith is the least considered and therefore the most neglected. We think of a thousand things and have trillions of motives before it comes to this one. Isn't that true? We are so self-centered. So self-centered. Our, our greatest objective in this life is to glorify God in all things. We shouldn't do anything for its own sake. You know, we don't nurture and raise our children as an end in itself. You guys... We're called to do it for the glory of God. If we do it for the glory of God, you know, our children will certainly benefit from it, and they should. But the life of our child belongs to God. Right? And so everything we do with those little lives should be for his glory. When it comes to money, we shouldn't manage it for our own comfort. We should manage it well because it's in keeping with God's character. It's for his glory. It's a representation of him. It goes with all things. If we do anything for any other reason, it honestly becomes a form of humanism. Something secular. Something that's antagonistic to God. Okay? It's for us. For our own glory. But when our motivation is to do it for the glory of God and how we do it, when it's consistent with the word of God, then it becomes worthy of him. Becomes worthy of him. You know, people have often asked me, uh, they have a decision to make. It's a big decision. And they say, well, Pastor Ben, what should I do? Well, I don't know. I think I am a prophet. I say, why don't you pick the one that glorifies God most. And you know how many times people have said to me, well, that just makes it easy. Because of all the options they had, many of them were self-serving. Many of them were just what they wanted. But then when they, when they consider it through the glory of God, they go, well, it's easily this one. And when we live for the glory of God, we get to benefit from the fruit. Isn't that true? How many of you guys have ever regretted living for the glory of God? I did this for him. I did this for his reputation, for his fame. It was for him. Never regretted that. Yeah. He's the God of glory. And as his children, we should be living for his glory, for his good pleasure. There's something that still rings in our ears, I believe, from the Reformation. Soli de gloria. De gloria, rather. For the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. 
Now, what I'd like to do uh, is I would like to finish by pronouncing the benediction upon you. Is that fair? Okay. And then I think we have uh, somebody coming up for a last song. Yes or no? No. Okay, that's just fine. Well, then why don't you please stand? And as my old pastor would say, receive the benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, in our hearts, Lord, that redeemed part of us, we want to be like you. But Lord, we need the benefits of heaven to rain down on us. We need your grace. So I pray, Lord, that as Calvary Chapel, that you would teach us to be, Lord, the students of grace. Lord, that you would help us to be humble to receive grace so that we might live acceptably to you, that we would be well-pleasing in your sight, and so that we would be equipped, Lord, for every work that you have for us. Help us to be people of grace. And Lord, I pray that as things continue to unravel around us, Lord, it appears to us from our perspective that it's unraveling out of control. It is not. Lord, you are sovereign over the world and you're going to lead everything to your intended end. So Lord, as we take refuge in that reality, help us to live in such a way that represents you well and brings you glory. Lord, help us to be living consistently with your character. Help us to be a light to this world as it's falling apart, as it's panicking. Lord, of all people, we should be the most stable and our words should be filled with grace. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.